Hey, I'm Kathy Walker from the Girls' Day School Trust, the GDST. We're a family of 25 girls' schools across the UK. We were founded by women for girls 150 years ago, and to this day, we remain experts in educating and inspiring girls. On each episode of Raise Their Up, we welcome guests who are experts in their fields to share their insights and to create the ultimate guide to raising and empowering girls, women, and everybody else. We welcome the stories and advice that help us as parents, carers, educators, and friends to instill the confidence and drive in girls to become the change makers that the world really needs. On this episode of Raise Her Up, my guest is Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist and GDST alumna, Ramisa Navai. So I realised there were amazing stories that the Islamic regime didn't want its own people to know. There was an article in an Iranian conservative right-wing paper calling me an imperialist, Zionist spy. And that's never a great charge. As a reporter, documentary maker and author, Ramita's fearlessness in telling the story behind the story in conflict zones has earned her a host of awards and the respect for peers across the globe. Something that's apparent in the way her fellow leading war reporters share their experience with her in her own podcast, The Line of Fire. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up. And this is Ramita Navai. I, think again, one of I the thought what was going through her was that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Raise, Raise her up. Ramita, I've heard your podcast. I've followed your work. It is such a pleasure to have you here as my guest. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let me start by asking you, given, given the sites that you have witnessed and the places you've visited, do you sometimes just take a moment to appreciate being safe and comfortable or are you always planning your next investigation? Definitely appreciate a clean loo that flushes and that doesn't stink. <laughs> and I appreciate being in a clean bed because that doesn't always happen. Actually, what happens usually after a trip is that I come back and I'm straight in an edit. So a kind of one hour documentary, you'll spend anything between eight weeks to 12 weeks editing it. Then I'm not very good at multitasking. Uh, so I should be planning all my next jobs and my next trips. But usually I like to take a little bit of a breather, especially if it's been quite an intense experience, which it usually has been. Um, and then I'll start planning the next project, actually. Tell us a bit about how you came to be a reporter. Was there a story or was there a moment when something just clicked um, and you knew this was your path or, or was it to do with your Iranian roots, you know, given that your family moved to the UK during the revolution when you were young? So I started my career pretty late. And I say this to young people because I think it's really important. I think there's so much pressure on young people to know exactly what they want to do you know, to know what career they want to go into when they finish school. I didn't know. And in fact, I was working as a copywriter for a catalogue company. So writing lots of strap lines like sexy summer sling backs. And that was not the dream. That was not what I wanted to do. And Twin Towers attack happened. Right. And I was in the office watching Twin Towers, phoned up my brother immediately and we started discussing it. And I remember Ramin, my brother, saying, it's Osama bin Laden. And of course, we, you know, these political discussions were pretty normal in our house. As you said, I was a child of the revolution, which meant I grew up discussing politics. And I'd always secretly wanted to be a journalist. I say secretly because I just didn't know how to do it. It seemed a kind of far off ambition. And when 9-11 happened, that was the moment that this 
desire was reignited. And I applied for a postgraduate at City University. And I was 28 years old, 30 when I graduated and 30 when I started my career. So I think it's really important that people know it doesn't matter if they don't find their way until they're in their 20s, 30s, even 40s. I know people have had big career changes and been huge successes in their 40s. And I knew I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. So as soon as I graduated, I got myself to Iran because I could speak the language like a truck driver, but I could still speak it, which meant that I wouldn't have to pay for a translator. I could keep costs down. And I got myself to Iran and I was only going to stay a few months. Um, actually, it turns out quite a few of us started working for this UN news website. Back in the day, it was called Iran News. It's now called the New Humanitarian. Great website. I noticed they didn't have any coverage from Iran. I'd phoned them before I left and I said, would you take stories from me? They said, yes. Initially, I was only going to go for three months, sell a few stories and then come back and see what I could do with it. And while I was there, a massive earthquake happened. And I happened to be one of three Western journalists who were the first on the scene uh, and that the other two were my friends. And I ended up having the front page of the Sunday Times and then the front page of the Times the next day and having an article in the Times the day after that. And I ended up staying for two weeks writing for newspapers. First time I ever wrote for a newspaper and then the Times asked me to stay. And I ended up staying in Iran for three years as their correspondent. Isn't it strange how sometimes you have these completely unpredictable events that change the course of your career? Yeah. Uh, you know, Kathy, I would say so much of it is luck. Yes. You know, I think it's hard work, determination, hard work, luck, and the rest is talent and ability. I mean, and I felt bad saying luck and being in the right place at the right time, because for me, that often means something terrible has happened. And in the case of Iran, it meant tens of thousands dead. And that's what gave me my break. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, you you do go to really difficult, challenging places. Um, and you're a woman. What is it like reporting from um, conflict zones and, and really hostile places as a female reporter? I'll start by saying that in some ways I've got a huge advantage because I can cover every single story my male colleagues can cover and I can cover the stories they can't cover because I have access to half a population often they don't have access to in countries like Afghanistan. And of course, covering stories of sexual abuse where women don't feel comfortable talking to men. So I have that advantage. Um, I also have the advantage of being overlooked and underestimated. And that is a gift. And I'll give you examples of that. When I work undercover at checkpoints like Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, at checkpoints, I'm waved on. It's just it's just another woman sitting in the back of a car. I've worked with minders in lots of different countries. I worked with a minder in northern Nigeria. Again, the minder didn't take us seriously at all, didn't realize that we were slipping away every time he wasn't with us, just thought, oh, these two silly, silly girls, what are they doing? So that is really, really helpful being overlooked. I would say as, as a woman working in conflict zones, the, the one thing that is in the back of my mind that probably isn't in the back of my male colleagues' minds as sexual assault and rape. And I've worked in a few countries where there are really, really high levels of sexual assault and rape. Um, that, I would say, is different. That is in the back of my mind. 
Let's talk about the recent documentary, the um, documentary Afghanistan, No Country for Women, which if any listeners haven't yet seen, they should really watch. It was a very difficult watch, but it was utterly compelling. And you conveyed so well the, the sense of a generation of completely impotent women living in constant secrecy and fear. What made you want to go over there? So I started looking at this story six months before the Taliban takeover. So at the beginning of the year in 2021, um, because the Taliban were sweeping across the country far quicker than was being reported. And in areas they were taking control of, um, they were starting to implement their extreme interpretation of Islamic law, which meant that they had started to publicly lash and punish women um, and punishments were extreme. So I was really interested in what was happening to women in those areas and using that as a kind of warning to the world of, listen, the Taliban are going to soon be taking control. They're sweeping across the country. This is what is to come. Of course, nobody predicted that they'd take the country so soon. Um, and actually, we got the official green light. We had a brilliant commissioning editor at ITV who loved the story and was on board. But we got the official green light a few days before Kabul fell. But of course, our story hadn't changed. It was now very real on a much bigger scale. Do you get nervous and scared when you are about to go into these zones? And, and how do you overcome that? I mean, most people would be so scared that they just wouldn't do it. But you do. I do feel a bit anxious before we start working, mostly because you have to compile something called a hostile protocol document and you do this for security and legal issues. It's a massive document. Um, and in that document, you have everything can go wrong, contingency plans, risks, mitigations, how to keep people safe, as well as your story and what you aim to film and what you want to investigate. So you can start to get a little anxious. But of course, once you get on the ground, especially if it's a country I know, you know that the reality is kind of mundane life, usually, unless it's an active conflict zone. But usually when I'm on the ground, the opposite can happen, actually, because it's kind of always more normal than you imagine you can then be lulled into a false sense of security or you can quickly become inured to the risks. And that's also a risk in itself. Would you include that in your in your risk assessment, taking it for granted and feeling safe? No. no. <laughs> I guess it's a human uh, reflex, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the risk assessments, you know, they're very precise um, and we tend to stick to them. You have to. You know, so if you're doing a particularly risky job, it'll be, you know, what route you take. If you have to go to the same place more than a few times, the different routes you must take. So you're changing your route constantly. We think through everything. And then we sit there with, you know, for Afghanistan, we had two security experts, who, you know, former army, a lawyer, a commissioning editor, our own Afghan security advisor. That's a big team making sure you're safe, but actually a lot of thought has gone into it. That's how you prepare to go into these very high risk situations. 
What about when you return? You mentioned earlier that when you return, you, you know, you take a moment and you enjoy your clean sheets and you enjoy your, you know, your, your luxurious house and bathroom. And what about in terms of self-preservation? It must be really hard to get past the things that you have seen. I don't know how luxurious my house is, Cathy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, you know, you must have built a rapport with the, you know, with the women in Afghanistan, with, you know, Mariam and her family. What was it like leaving them? I feel incredibly lucky every time I come home. Yeah, I think that's so important. Sometimes I feel pangs of guilt. That's not a very useful feeling, but I do feel lucky, you know, lucky that I happened to have been born into a family that spent their lives being safe and sheltered and having food and having accommodation and then being able to move to a Western country where I have had freedom in every sense of the word. Once again, that is pure luck, isn't it? But, uh, you know, when people rail yeah. against uh, people joining, you know, immigrants joining our country, you say, it's, you know, it's only luck that separates us from them. Yes. And if we were those people, would we be trying to fight for a better life for ourselves and our children? Of course we would. So in each episode of Razor Up, we go out to a member of our GDST family to get their perspective on the matter at hand. And today I am joined by Kelly Murphy, who is Head of History and Politics and Careers at Birkenhead High School Academy. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. We are here with Ramita Navai, who is an investigative journalist and a GDST alum talking about her career, which has been heavily influenced by politics, by current affairs and by the desire to make a change. So how do you encourage your students at Birkenhead High School Academy to engage with current affairs and with the desire to make change? A really good place to start would be with the individual subject teachers. They regularly link their subject to wider world events. Our wonderful head of RS always sends out presentations about Diwali and other religious ceremonies. Us in the history and politics department, we run mock elections and mock referendums alongside national ones. Our staff, their subject is their passion. But more than this, every day we have a compulsory enrichment period covering sports groups, creative groups, but within that there is a whole section of groups dedicated to global impact and cultural responsibility and community. And these enrichments go to the heart of what you're talking about here. They aim to challenge pupils to think about their own responsibility, their own community, and the impact that their actions can have on the wider world. We encourage students to collaborate with local charities, initiatives, um, and look for ways to develop their awareness of employability, business links, and cultural practices across the globe. Some of those groups include Philosophy Cafe, Conspiracy Club, Debate Club. We've even got one called Culture and Current Affairs. More than that, we allow students to, in fact, we encourage students to raise funds and raise awareness for issues they themselves are interested in. And in that way, we get students leading the learning, which is so much more powerful. Sixth form students doing a donation drive for the women's refuge, um, bake sales in age of Ukraine, that kind of thing. 
parental involvement is key as well. It's more of a triangular effect to encourage students to engage in the wider world. We've recently celebrated Green Careers Week, which enabled me to write to parents and send an information pack out about the rise of the green economy in the hope that it'll prompt discussions at home so that when the students return to school, they've got the confidence to talk or, or write about these current affairs. Can you tell us about some of your most memorable moments in this career? When have you felt most proud? What's been the most rewarding? But, you know, what's been your most frightening as well, I guess? Gosh, I mean, the memorable experiences, you know, usually the moments that go wrong. (laughs) They're usually the most memorable. So I remember investigating Blood Diamonds in Zimbabwe, again, working undercover. Uh, Journalists we're not allowed to work then and certainly we're not allowed to investigate uh, Mugabe's role in in these blood diamonds that were being mined. And we ended up across the border in Mozambique um, with, in, in, there's a row of illegal diamond dealers. Um, and these are powerful, scary people. And we were sitting in a car outside one of these uh, diamond dealers and we were working with um, a Zimbabwean activist who'd also been investigating this. And, you know, two middle-class white English people supposedly on a golf and safari holiday um, could not have walked in one of these diamond dealing shops. So um, I stayed in the car. I was driving. I stayed in the car with um, Alex, my then director, and the our Zimbabwean activist went in to film secretly and he had a secret filming hat on. And as soon as he walked in, you know, he was really, really nervous. And I was sitting outside behind a wheel, ready to go if anything went wrong, but we thought nothing was going to go wrong. He'd done it before, but just never secretly filming. And he'd done it a few times before investigating this um, for uh, for an international charity. So we're sitting outside, he went in and he suddenly started hearing a whirring noise and he started getting really nervous and then he realised that the whirring noise was coming from his head and it was from his secret filming equipment. So he lifted his phone to his head as though his phone was making this noise and then his secret filming camera in the hat he was wearing on his head exploded. <laughs> so he, <laughs> oh. he pretended it was his phone and like a complete weirdo, he was just holding his phone up to his head, cursing at his phone. Everybody was looking at him. He darted out, jumped in the car, and was like, drive. And of course I floored it. And 10 minutes later, we were laughing very hard and he was laughing very hard. And we we live to tell the story, but usually it's moments like that, and there that there 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 are there are many more than there should be. <laughs> I'm sure, isn't it funny how that that hysterical laughter after peril is such a human reaction, yes. isn't it? Um, yeah. When I was kind of writing your bio, we used the word fearlessness. Would you describe yourself as fearless? Oh God, no, because I'm often scared, and. Yeah, I'm often scared and feel slightly paranoid. So yeah, I I, I don't know if how many people fearless. I think fearlessness can sometimes be stupidity. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm quite bullshy. I like to face fear, but it doesn't mean that I don't feel fear. 
Yeah. I'm a risk taker. I'm certainly a risk taker, but I, I, I balance up. I weigh up risks. Yeah. Well, you must be very, very used to doing that now. Um, you are, uh, whether you like it or not, or are, are too modest to accept this, you are a role model for young women and for aspiring reporters and for people listening in. Who were your role models, Ramisa, when you were growing up and who do you still look to now and admire? God, do you know, I remember at school, Putney High, we were told about Rosa Parks, the civil rights activist, who was a very ordinary woman who did a very extraordinary thing. And that extraordinary thing changed the course of civil rights in America. And I was so struck by that. It's ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And they're the people I look up to. More so, I would say, than big heroes. And I tell you why, because I've, I've learned that heroes don't really exist. People do very heroic things. So Mother Teresa did amazing things. But if you actually look into her as a human, not so much. You know, she, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gandhi the same, that they're, they're fallible, they're human. They, some of some brilliant people have terrible traits. And if you build people up into heroes and you expect them to be perfect people because they have done perfect things, uh, that have changed the world, you will be disappointed. So actually, you know, I did grow up looking at people like Mother Teresa and Gandhi and I realized, no, actually it's the kind of Rosa Parks of this world um, and her heroism didn't corrupt her. Mm. I looked up to women a few years ahead of me, higher up on the rung, doing what I wanted to do, who were generous and helpful and who were brilliant at their jobs and who did it unapologetically and did it despite sexism and despite being told they couldn't do it. And they did it their way and they lived as men would live. And they are the people I look up to still. Janine Tijamani is one of them. She's an absolute inspiration still for younger, for younger people now. And she's done things her way no matter what. And she's been bloody brilliant at it. And she's really talented and she writes beautifully and she's a great journalist. Yeah, they're the people I still look up to now. And also, you know, doing the job, I meet heroes the whole time. And the heroes I meet are, are not the big names. You know, they're just the ordinary Joes standing up to power and authority. Am I right in thinking that you wrote in your book, City of Lies, Love, Sex, Death and the Search for Truth in Tehran? Am I right in thinking that you're having authored that book means that it's very, very difficult for you to return. And how do you feel about that? Yes. And there's lots of sex and drugs in it and the theocratic Iranian regime, not too hot on sex and drugs. Mm, I've heard. <laughs> like to keep that secret. Um, yeah, I wrote it knowing that I may not be able to go back, but they were stories I was compelled to write. You know, I was working in Iran as a journalist and realizing that if you wanted to survive as a journalist in Iran, you had to self-censor, which is what we all did. So I was there as an Iranian journalist, even though I was writing for a Western newspaper, because the Iranians, as we saw with Nazanin, Zaghari, Ratcliffe, don't, um, they, they, they don't accept dual, national, dual nationality if you're um, born Iranian. Um, so for that reason, it was slightly trickier for me because I was on an Iranian passport, which means the Brits couldn't um, protect me. 
Uh, but even Western journalists, even my friends there, the Brits, had to self-censor. Otherwise, they'd get in trouble too. Uh, a few people got chucked out when I was there for crossing the red lines. So I realised there were amazing stories being amazing stories out there that weren't being told. And these stories were stories that the Islamic regime didn't want its own people to know, never mm. mind outsiders. And that's when I realized I just had to write them. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, it, that, that book and those stories were just in my blood. They're part of my DNA and I needed to get them out. And of course, I haven't been told you can't come back, we'll arrest you because you very rarely are. Um, but it's, yeah, it's clear that it's not quite safe. There was, there was an article about me in an Iranian conservative right-wing hardline paper calling me an imperialist Zionist spy. And that's never a great charge. Put that on your business card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She put that on my Twitter handle. Um, so your, your parents, this is, oh, this is a, a, a parenting podcast, um, in the main. Um, and I went, when I was, um, listening to your podcast and, and, and looking at what you had done, I thought about your parents. So your parents must worry for your well-being. It'd be interesting to hear what they, how they feel about it, but it would also really be interesting to hear what you would say to parents who have young people interested in doing what you're doing. And I mean, it's interesting also to hear about your first experience of reporting. There was an earthquake. I mean, that that's just something that can happen when you are um, you know, away in, in, in different countries. So it's not even like you could have risk assessed for that. <laughs> my, my, my dad passed away two and a half years ago now. Mm, I'm so sorry. Oh, and he was the love of my life. He was just the best dad, kindest human ever. And my dad spent a lot of time in Iran. Uh, Mum was over here mostly when I was living there. So we spent a lot of time living together in Iran and he was always really, really, really frantic and really worried when I was working in Iran. Uh, but of course, at the same time, very proud. But, you know, I would say that I did reassure them. It didn't always work, but they knew that I wasn't just swanning off to Syria and I wasn't just swanning off to Iraq. Although, of course, they knew there were wars going on and that I'd be in a war zone and that's dangerous and they'd be beside themselves. But I would run through everything with them. Actually, actually, I say that sometimes it's better, you know, to, to keep them in the dark. Ignorance can be bliss. So sometimes I kind of, yeah, I keep information to myself because I know that they'll just be even more worried if they know exactly what I'm doing and what I'm up to. So yeah, no, I didn't tell mum that I'd be secretly filming in a prison in Afghanistan surrounded by 15 armed talibs. <laughs> I left that behind. Oh my goodness. Well, that, that, that scene when you arrive and setting up the, the hidden camera, um, I, it was, it was awful to watch. It was, you know, how can you do this? So yes. And, and, you know, and I am just a fan. I'm not, I'm not your mum. <laughs> mum gets very stressed watching. She does get very stressed watching. And mum's dream for me is to work in the HSBC and East Sheen. And how are you getting on with that? <laughs> I think finally, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be 49 in a few weeks. I think honestly, it's taken half a century for mum to realise I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm. I think there's a bit of her that likes the fact that I'm driven. And, you know, I think a lot of this is down to mum. 
Um, and she probably enjoys that fact and recognizes that fact. I was remember being very little and my mum taking me. This is a seminal moment in my life. I was, I was tiny. I was, you know, it must have been, I don't know, four or five years old. It's such a clear memory of my mum taking me to a village in Iran and it was deep winter and it was freezing and there was snow. And I remember mum saying, look at this village, Ramita. Look how cold everyone is. There's no electricity. There's no water. Do you know how poor people are? Do you know how lucky you are? This sounds like abuse, doesn't it? <laughs> but actually it made such an impression. It was, you know, that that stuck with me. And still, if I think about it now, it, it still moves me. So my mum was always, you know, talking about... I remember my mum faxing when somebody was, you know, she sent furious faxes, I think on behalf of Amnesty, when uh, an American death row prisoner was about to be um, executed. So all of these things really stuck with me. Yeah, she only has herself to blame, Kathy. <laughs> she just shouldn't have been so damn inspirational. Um, tell me, do you have any words of wisdom for budding reporters out there? Would you recommend your career? I absolutely would recommend my career. Um, because I think we need, especially in this kind of post-Trump, post-truth, ever divided world, we need young, driven, ambitious, passionate reporters out there telling the truth and getting stories out there. I would say it's not very well paid. You know, I would say you have to do it because you believe in it. Um, I would also say, you know, it's sometimes it's the boring stories. I, if I would talk to my old self now, you know, you want to do the big human rights stories and the the deaths and the killings, which of course are are important, but they're actually the easier stories to tell. The kind of more boring stories are often the more important ones. The money trails, you know, money laundering, corruption. Um, and I would also say that, you know, a great story is a great story and it doesn't matter the medium. So I started in print, I started in newspapers and, uh, and now I make documentaries, but a great story is a great story. Go for the story. Don't worry about the medium that will all come and just, yeah, hold people to account, hold the baddies to account. That's what we need. Fantastic. So what's next? Uh, are you actually able to tell us what is next? I can't, um, which is annoying because I always want to shout out about what's next. Um, I am working on my second book. Ah. It's been a long time. So I'm doing that as well. Um, there will be, and that's that's kind of Middle East focused, but it's exciting. It's an, it's an, it's an exciting kind of slightly more global, global story in lots of countries, spanning lots of countries. Um, and there will be a second podcast out. The first one did very well, which I'm very happy about, which means there'll be a second one out. Um, and I will be working on a new investigation. Well, we will follow your progress um, with interest and with awe. Ramita, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Something that really struck me about Ramita is the humour that she has 
she talks about such hard hitting stuff and she has experienced such challenging and scary circumstances. But it is wonderful to hear that she can still inject that humor and that perspective into her work. And indeed, that's present in her brilliant book, uh, City of Lies, which she wrote about Tehran. I also find it really encouraging to hear her say that she is keen to encourage young people into her profession. Goodness knows that we have lots of baddies in the world today that uh, we need to hold to account, as she says. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up. My guest is behavioural and data scientist, Professor Pragya Agarwal. We keep hearing that men and women are very different. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. That was very much underpinned by the idea that there is a very clear difference between men and women brains. But we now find that there's not one clear part of the brain that engages in these activities. It happens through an interconnection of different parts. So there is no difference between men and women like that. I'll see you then. And I think again, one of I the thought what's going through her is that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a hell, we're giving our love. Raise her up.